Thanks, Deirdre, and thank you, Rustads, for sharing those uh, deep things. It was uh, a great testimony to God's faithfulness. So we are into a series on hospitality. The first message um, looked at the big idea of hospitality or loving strangers being central to the mission that God has given to his people. Uh, We grow as individuals, we grow as families, we grow as a church, and as a church, we are unified in our efforts to, to love strangers, to love the world, to make sacrifices, and to really follow the model of Jesus Christ as he extended his love and grace into the world at a great cost to himself. So we looked at that big idea. We spent a couple weeks in the Old Testament and the New Testament on the ideas of hospitality as presented in Scripture uh, for all of the revealed word, uh, how Israel was to engage in it, and how the church was supposed to engage in it. And then we, and we've started to take kind of a, some practical things. We looked at um, what it means to focus your life as an individual and as a household um, on this, this mission of hospitality. Uh, we looked at use of time. We've looked at use of money. Last week, we addressed the concept of friendships and what it means to devote ourselves uh, to developing real friendships, real relationships, especially with strangers and outsiders. That is the essence of hospitality, to, to extend the love and kindness and generosity to those you don't know very well, to those who wouldn't be considered a, a part of your family, but to, to love them as, as family. And so today, um, because of the high commitments that the scriptures call us to as individuals and as households and how that really is to orient how we think about our time and our money and what we uh, engage in, what we spend our energies on, uh, we want to take a couple weeks, three weeks, to look at uh, real challenges uh, that we face when trying to make some of these changes to refocus uh, our lives and what we give our lives to. And so the first week here, we're going to look at challenges to men. Um, How does reorienting ourselves and our households affect men? Uh, Next week, Deirdre's going to look at and preach on the challenges to women, and then the following week, she's going to look at uh, challenges in regard to having children. So some practical things here. And so um, today, we're going to look at the challenges that we see and experience and in Scripture that um, are are really um, surrounding uh, men. And uh, Gabe and I, my youngest son, Gabe, he's 14, um, we try to... We try to get up to uh, the North Shore uh, at least once a year to do a few days of fishing. And so this, uh, this, this last week, we went up on Wednesday, and we usually just spend a couple nights. That's about all we can endure. Um, the, the, I'm actually kind of at a point where uh, camping is just not something I'm going to do anymore. But anyway, we... <laughs> we we take a couple nights. We're both kind of tired of it, but by then we had a great time. We, we, we caught a lot of fish. We had a great time. But at the end, um, our family really enjoys Grand Marais. So it's about 30 miles from where we came out of the Boundary Waters at. And our, I mean, the first thing we do when we get to Grand Marais is go to the World's Best Donuts. Anybody familiar with the World's Best Donuts? All right, so we parked the car, you know, we're tired, we're hungry, we'd like some food not boiled uh, or, you know, cut up ourselves. And, and so we, we, we go to the World's Best Donuts, and, and if you're familiar with it, there's, an, there's a little stairway, it's, it's kind of tight, it's a small donut shop, super popular, the donuts are great. The, uh, there's, a, there's an entrance 
a small stairs that goes up into the, to the entrance, into the shop. There's no room at all anywhere. And then there's, an, then there's an exit with a door that goes out the back. It's a separate thing. So we, get, we, we walk up there, and there's this, um, you know, we, we go on vacation as families, all my siblings, my mom and dad, so there's like 30 of us. It wasn't quite that big, but it was a, it was a group of families all together. And they were just standing in the way, and um, some had gone in to get donuts, and the rest were waiting for them, but they were just waiting right there. There's a kid in the stroller, uh, he's crying, and I'm just like, do you people not see that you're in the way? All right, so one of the ladies finally said, hey, you guys, we're standing in the way, let's get out of the way. But just at that moment, the people that had gone in to buy the donuts for the whole group of families came back out. Instead of going out the exit, they came back through the entrance. So now there's a whole mob of people coming through the entrance, and I'm like, this is just chaotic. So anyway, I didn't get, I didn't get angry. I was very patient, quiet, peaceable. And, um, but those are the kind of things that I notice and that irritate me. And... So we go in, we get our donuts, we sit down, we eat them, um, we drive a few blocks to where we're going to have lunch. So we went to Voyager Brewery, because you can play cribbage while you're waiting for your food. So Gabe and I like to play cribbage. So we ordered our food, we sat down, we start playing cribbage. All of a sudden, we heard these screams, like super loud screams. And, and then in walks this group of families. <laughs> and... And it's just chaotic. They, 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 they come in. The kid is now throwing a, a temper tantrum in the store. He's there. He's gritting his teeth, and he's just mad as anything. They, they sit down at one group of tables. Something was wrong. They moved to another group of tables. And, and it was just kind of creating disorder in, inside this entire restaurant. And it was complete chaos. And then I asked myself, where are the men and then I had this thought, I bet they're on their devices. So I kind of take a moment from our cribbage game, and I look over to the table, and I can see two guys. One of them is just kind of staring off into oblivion, <laughs> all right? And everything is just chaotic. And the other one is on his phone. And while he's on his and I just watched for like five seconds, and boom, his wife immediately started just berating him and, and correcting him. And you, I could just hear the words, what in the world are you doing? Can't you see that this whole, you know, it, you could, I could just see it. And then we, when we walked up to, to, to pay, you know, I, I just, um, I, I felt two things. Disgust, all right, at, at observing the effects of an out-of-control group of households and the men not doing anything. But then I looked into the eyes of the guy who was on... I mean, it was not like I stared at him or like... Did, it's not like we did this intimate eye-to-eye -eye contact thing. I, but I just, I just looked in his eyes and I saw lifelessness. And so I was sad. I, w I really felt sympathy for the guy because you, I could just look at him. And I think he had two young kids, and his, his wife was totally disrespecting him. Um, and it just seemed like, here's a man that, um, it, 
you know, you can't make a lot of judgments that are correct necessarily, but I just felt like this, this, guy's, this guy doesn't have a reason for living in his mind. Whatever vision he had as a young man for life and work and family and children and marriage and all those things seems to have been extracted from him. Now, who knows? They could have just been having a bad day because those of you with families, all right, we've all been there, right, to some degree, to some degree. And so, you know, it, it just for me was a, a picture of the challenge that, that we have as, as men in this world. The culture doesn't provide a script anymore for its men. It used to. It really did. It doesn't anymore. And in the absence of a script, when I say a script, like um, there, there's, a, there's a, a, a process and some milestones and some structures that the culture provides to give some direction to people and, and to men, to women, and we don't have that. Now, I'm, saying, I'm not saying what we used to have in terms of scripts was like godly and the kingdom and all. I'm not saying that. But we don't have a script, and there's increased uh, uh, confusion and challenge and unknowns in, in what it means to be a man and to become a husband or a father or a contributing member of society. Um, and if we, do, if we don't have one as a culture, the subcultures, the subcultures will provide one. Um, and... What I want to look at is just a few scripts that the, that the subcultures and our, and our broader culture provide. And so the passage that, um, that Mark read this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, uh, you know, the, the book of 1 Timothy is written to a church planner by Paul, Paul the Apostle, to Timothy. And Timothy was, was stationed in the city of Ephesus. And around the city of Ephesus, uh, over like maybe a 10-year period, um, dozens of churches were started within a, like a 100, 150 mile radius in all these cities around Ephesus. Ephesus was the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, a port city. Very, very important for economically, politically, militarily, in all these different ways, uh, religiously. And so a lot of churches started. And so Timothy had this responsibility to, to work with the, the churches and the elders of those churches to help order them and structure them so that they would be on task, on mission as a church. And so he says in chapter 3, I've written these things so that, so that you all would know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And that idea is that, um, and then he goes on to an explanation of the gospel. And the idea is that uh, there is a, a witness and a testimony going forth in this world from the community of God's people, the church, local churches. And he's specifically referring to conduct in local churches. Generally, most often when the New Testament speaks of church, it's speaking of local churches, not the broad universal one that we oftentimes think. So there is a witness that local churches are performing in this world, giving testimony to the gospel, giving testimony to the changed lives that Christ creates in us. And that, and, but it's essential that the church follows this conduct, this way of life for the people of God. This is what, this is what creates this testimony. So um, it says that the, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. 
The church is not the truth. Jesus is the truth. The gospel is the truth, which the passage continues to explain as a mystery. But even though the church isn't the truth, it is what holds it up, okay, a pillar and support. These are architectural terms. In a, in a building, you have pillars, you have buttresses, you have foundations. And without those things, you don't have a building. So Jesus is real. He's the truth. The Spirit is alive. The Spirit is active. But they are working through the church to show truth to the world. Without the church's testimony and witness in their conduct, there would be no witness on the earth. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. And so the conduct is essential. And so he, this is why he's left Timothy in Ephesus and with all these local churches is so that the churches would be able to engage in this proper conduct. And so the conduct that he is prescribing is contradictory to what the culture is doing. So he says, to men, to men. Quit quarreling. Quit fighting. I want you to pray. <laughs> I want you to pray. I want you to pray for all men, all kings, all rulers. This is good in that it leads to the formation of civilizations and our ability to live quiet, dignified, peaceful, godly lives. So I want to look at the first challenge that men have. The challenge is to fight. The challenge is to engage in culture wars. We see it all over the media at this point. And we talked last week, uh, we, have a, we have an epidemic of loneliness. Arthur Brooks from uh, the New York Times wrote this op-ed. Uh, he says, loneliness is tearing our nature apart. And so in the midst of loneliness... Uh, you have longings um, for people. People have longings to, to, for a sense of belonging. And the strong us versus them climate in our political dialogue right now and the proliferation of social media, which gives essentially everybody, everybody with a smartphone, everybody with, a, with a, some sort of device, can engage in this us versus them political battle. And it is a significant temptation not to engage in this if there is nothing else your life is to be about. If you don't have a mission and a calling and a vision, you start to see, hey, here, here's something that I can contribute to. Here's, I, can see that the, I can see the wrongs in my culture. I can do something about it. It creates a vision and a mission for people that don't have one. And men are especially inclined to engage in something where they see that there's going to be a fight. I can prove myself. I can gain honor. I can identify the problems. I can somehow help fix them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh in. I'm going to participate. And this, this, this anger and quarreling that Paul warns against and says to the men, Avoid the anger and quarreling. Anger and quarreling provide a sense of power. They provide a sense of power. And this, this mindset that develops that you're always in this fight. 
All right? In the, in the absence of having a meaningful purpose in life, there can be easily developed a, some sort of a mission, some sort of a vision where you see yourself in perpetual warfare perpetually battling and we're going to see that one of the things that happens when we become disillusioned in our lives is that we start to blame social forces for the problems in our life and we blame social forces for us not feeling fulfilled and meaningful and this and people give lifetimes to fight the social forces that they feel are sources of injustice in pursuit of happiness in pursuit of meaning in pursuit of a vision and fulfillment now there's a place for political engagement there's a place for political engagement there are people that have callings paul says to pray for those who are kings and rulers god is at work in the rulers and kings and sometimes it seems like he's not all right, just like sometimes it doesn't seem like he's engaged in our personal lives, he's not listening to our prayers, etc., like Megan shared this morning. Um, sometimes it doesn't seem like Jesus Christ is sitting on his throne as King of Kings and Lords of Lords, ruler and power and authority over every dominion and throne that is named. All right, it doesn't seem like Jesus is in that place, but he is, and he is sustaining all things, and he is he is working in this world to eventually bring it to a point where his kingdom is established, where peace and contentedness, contentedness um, and, and happiness and fulfillment are the, are the experiences of everybody. And that is what his will is for human civilization. And that's why we are called to pray. The men are called to pray, not fight. This is not your mission, men, Jesus is at work in the world to bring about the flourishing of humanity, and eventually Jesus will come and establish his government. This cannot be our mission. Part of our mission is to pray for our nations, for the people in our world, for our civilization, that it would lead to peace, that it would lead to peace. And somehow, this is tied to, because then he goes on into saying, um, for it is the will of God that all would be saved. And for us to live quiet, dignified, peaceful, godly lives. And so our ability as the people of God, who are the witnesses and testifiers to the truth, is connected to our ability to live quiet, dignified, godly, and peaceful lives. And in this context, um, we promote the witness of the gospel. We promote the witness of the gospel, which is our mission. And so instead of the temptation to give ourselves to the social causes that are always creating an us versus them mentality, we are to recognize that we are a part of the, of the kingdom of God, we are a part of his household, and that we are to instead um, pray for the salvation of people and to pray for the rulers and authorities in human civilization. That is how we engage this world in mission. Not quarreling, not fighting. The second challenge I want to look at is, is from Ecclesiastes, and we didn't read this passage this morning. 
But the passage is Ecclesiastes 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And there's, it's kind of strung throughout all of Ecclesiastes. So I'm just going to kind of highlight. So King Solomon was the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes was written as a kind of a, a philosophical essay that would be collected amongst the kings and the rulers and the philosophers of the nations around. Solomon had a great deal of influence over many nations during his reign. And so it's not written as what we would normally consider a, a theological treatise that would be found in the Bible. It's written kind of as a worldview perspective. The term God is only used a few times, but it's Solomon's experience on what it means to pursue of fulfillment and happiness in this life. And he gets into chapter 2 and he says, here's what I did as part of my effort to find meaning and happiness. Um, I pursued a lot of money. I pursued the building of a lot of projects. And he goes on to explain palaces and homes and gardens and irrigation systems. And I mean, he pursued it extensively for decades. Um, I pursued all sorts of entertainment. He hired from all of the nations the best dancers and performers. And then he says, I pursued the delights of men. He had 700 concubines, which are women specifically for sexual pleasure, and 300 wives. Okay? God did not condone this. And later Solomon realizes that he had a season in his life where he forsook God. Uh, and it was in the midst of this season where he forsook God, married many women, um, and, and, they began, and he began to serve and worship other gods. And at the end of his life, he kind of has an aha moment and recognizes how he lived his life and where he went wrong. Um, and he says, all of these things brought me pleasure. And that is the deception of these things. So, men, we can, we, there's a lot of projects we can engage in. Um, we bought a house uh, six years ago, bought our house, and it didn't have a lot of work to do, and I'm really thankful for that because I love projects. I like every project means a new tool or tools, and so, you know, and you, we, we are just compelled to these kinds of things. And they bring pleasure. They bring satisfaction. You complete something, you get something done, it adds to the value of the house, it adds to the experience of the family. Good things. But that pleasure is fleeting. Entertainment. We enjoy all the various forms of entertainment. I, I enjoy catching fish. I enjoy watching movies and television. I, I enjoy a whole lot of things. And what Solomon recognizes is that these things do indeed bring pleasure. But the pleasure is fleeting. The pleasure is fleeting. Money, possessions, building projects, uh, experiencing all of your sexual fantasies. Boom, he, he, he did it all. And at the end of it, he said, yep, for, for a moment, my heart felt pleasure. After it was over and I started to consider what I had, I realized that I had nothing. It didn't bring the satisfaction that I was looking for. But he offers a contrasting vision, just like Paul did, to quarreling and fighting and anger, 
rather than pursuing all of these things for meaning and fulfillment, building projects, money, possessions, entertainment, sexual fantasies, several times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he summarizes what he found to be true in terms of what brings happiness. Find a work and enjoy the work. Enjoy the fruit and produce of your work, which is your food and your drink. Enjoy your wife and your family, all in the context of serving God and keep, fearing God and keeping his commandments. And then he says, what I have seen and noticed is that it is God who brings the happiness. He says he saw, he saw depressed and angry rich people and poor people, successful people and non-successful people. He saw misery across the board, but what he noticed and observed with those who kept their life simple and focused on these few things and pursued God and his purposes experienced happiness and fulfillment. These things are, I think, summarize the substantial challenges that we as men have. Um, Engaging in fighting and quarrels and battle, thinking that we can fight against social forces that are destroying our ability to find happiness, or all of the various opportunities of our culture in terms of building things, accomplishing things, buying things, sexual fantasy, all of the various things that our culture provides. And it's limitless what our culture provides. And, and we as men are, are, are constantly tempted in all stages of life to pursue these things for fulfillment and happiness. Even we as, as Christians, if we're not super intentional in what we are determining to be our life focus and our life purpose. And so it's easy for us to get to a place of disappointment if we're not clear on what our lives are to be about and we're looking for meaning and fulfillment in the right place. It's, we will experience disappointment. We'll experience what I saw in the eyes of that man. Lifelessness. And uh, there's, there's, there's four options, and I get this from Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis. Four options in, in the face of this disappointment when meaning and fulfillment for us as men, it applies to, to women too, and next week's will apply to men too and the general principles as well. But, but here's what, here's what C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller observe. Four things. When, when, when we experience disappointment in not finding this happiness and fulfillment that we're pursuing, the first one is that we just remain frantic in pursuit of the next thing. The things that we've acquired... The, the projects, the job, the spouse or the partner, the financial security, whatever it is, it doesn't provide the happiness. So the blame then goes on to those things. Well, it's not the right spouse, it's not the right job, it's not enough money. I'm going to keep looking. And basically they say you just drive yourself frantic and you get to the point where you're exhausted. You know? Second way, you get angry. So there's frantic exhaustion. There's anger because it's not the fault of the things. It's, again, social forces that are 
keeping you from what you want. So you live your life battling social forces that you think are prohibiting your happiness. Not recognizing that the people that have all of the things that you want, they're not happy either. But you live your life in this battle. The third thing, self-hating. You don't blame the things, you don't blame the social forces, you blame yourself. It must be me. There must be a problem with me, which leads to depression, uh, anxiety, self-loathing, suicidal thoughts, these kinds of things. The problem must be me. Happiness isn't for me because I've got so many problems. And the fourth one is kind of a, 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 a sensible distancing. Happiness isn't possible. So you kind of just slide into this mode of being cynical. It's not possible to find happiness. It's not possible to find contentment or meaning or fulfillment. And so I'm just going to kind of just survive, which is not satisfying at all. But that's the fourth conclusion. That's the fourth conclusion. The fifth option, the fifth option is to recognize that meaning and fulfillment is only going to be found, as Solomon said, in God, fearing God and keeping his commandments. Going back to our first sermon, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will abide in you, and I will give you, Jesus says, complete joy. And so in contrast to what Solomon experienced, which was this instantaneous sense of pleasure, when he pursued and fulfilled all of the... He says, I pursued whatever my heart and my eyes desired. And it's not like Solomon was in a place where he could get whatever he wanted. And he did. So he had this instantaneous joy that went away and left him feeling miserable, discontent, unfulfilled, what he called vanity. And what Jesus says is that I will give you a complete and a sustaining joy. And see, that's what we're after. That's really what we're after, men or women. Men or women. And so, men, we've got to, we've got to recognize that this, we are pursuing this complete joy that Jesus offers. And to pursue these other things for that is only going to bring us um, misery because it's going to disappoint us. It's not as if these things aren't good Okay, there's truth in them. There's truth in that our work is to bring us some degree of satisfaction. Solomon affirms that. It's true that, that experiences with sexuality with our spouses is pleasurable and satisfying. It's true that food and drink are really good things that are to bring enjoyment. God created them for that. What C.S. Lewis says is that these earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy but to arouse and point to the thing that will. He says this, I find myself, if I find my, in, excuse me, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for something in another world. This, this world is not providing what my heart is longing for. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. 
And he says, all living things were created with desires for things that exist. We are pursuing fulfillment and happiness. And it's not going to be found outside of what was designed to give that happiness, which is presence with God. The, 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 the song this morning is from the Psalms. David says, I have never experienced a greater degree of pleasure, God, than in your presence. The world can't compare to the experience that I have and to the pleasures that you provide in your presence. In your presence. St. Augustine says to God, to worship you is the deepest desire for humanity, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest and fulfillment in you. And if we go back to this passage, okay, so what does it mean then to find God? What does it mean to find God? And, and this passage says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. To find God, to find happiness, to find fulfillment means that we must go through Jesus. It means that we must go through Jesus. And, and it, is, it is a recognition that Jesus has done something for us in this connection to God that puts us in a place uh, not just of obligation. We are in a place of obligation to Jesus Christ, but in this place of passion, in this place of passion. I want to go to uh, 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, verse 13, and read it real quick here. Excuse me. Paul says this, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul calls himself the worst of all sinners. He actively fought against the body of Christ, the church. He, he was killing Christians. And then he became an apostle, a messenger of Jesus and a planner of churches. And he, ex, he experiences this. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love. And see, and, and it's, it's Paul's experience of this overflowing. It's Paul's experience of this overflowing of Jesus' love. And, it, and, it's, and it's faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. And, and so it's this, the, the word faith there, I would have rather seen it be translated as trust. 
because that communicates uh, not like us having faith in Christ. It communicates that there's this that there's this trust relationship that I now have in Jesus Christ. He is my friend. He is trustworthy. And, and it creates this sense that um, we are together. That we are together and that he is, he is filling me. He is loving me. And it's only upon Paul's recognition of what Jesus saved him from, because he says he was a ransom, and, which means that we were purchased. And what did he purchase us out of? He purchased us out of this meaninglessness. He purchased us out of this constant disappointment. He purchased us out of a, a life that is never going to find what we're looking for outside of Jesus. And so he provides, Jesus provides this experience to, to fill us. But it's in recognition that I need Jesus. It's in recognition that I need Jesus to find this. And, 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 and it's in recognition that our sins, our offenses against God, all of the things that we committed in pursuit of happiness outside of God, all the sins that we committed in pursuit of money, in pursuit of sex, in, in pursuit of projects, in our anger and violence toward the world. If we see ourselves as, as, and, our, and our former lives or our current lives as just these, these vain, empty pursuits that are destroying ourselves and destroying others, and we are honest about what we've done and are honest about what we've done to others in pursuit of these things. We see ourselves as idolaters. We see ourselves as giving our lives to things that are just not going to amount to anything. And then here's Jesus who comes in and provides that. He comes in and provides that. And so I, th I think just to conclude... Jesus says, so in pursuit of Jesus, we recognize our need for him. And then he says, and that creates a love. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So our, our, our pursuit in life then to experience this happiness that Solomon says, God is only able to provide. And Jesus says, I will provide it for you, is in pursuit of what it means to obey Jesus' commandments. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that keeps us in this state of, of pursuing him and knowing him and understanding him. And then he reciprocates. He reciprocates. So men... I think the first thing that we've got to realize and address um, is, is the acceptance of the grace of God for us, which means an acknowledgement and exposure of our sins. An acknowledgement and exposure of our sins. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure many, many of you have experienced this. Some of you may be on this threshold. Personally, I've had sins in my life, sins that maybe were short-term, sins that were long-term that I hid, did not expose. And over time, the, the weight and the shame and the guilt of that sin grows. And the fear of being found out grows, right? And all of those things just keep getting worse. But you come to this moment where you're like, you know what, I can't go on anymore. And you expose it, you confess it. 
And you don't care what the consequences are because nothing feels as bad as the weight of that shame and guilt. And you feel a freedom. And that freedom is a gift from God because it's peace of mind and because it's in recognition of the forgiveness that Jesus provides and that, there, and that he has removed all shame and guilt. We have to first recognize, men, that we, we have got to get out from under shame and guilt and live in the peace of Christ and his forgiveness. And the second thing is that we really need to take action then to engage our responsibilities and the needs around us. We have to get on mission, obey Christ. We start with, we start with prayer. We pray for the salvation of the people around us. We pray for the purposes of God to manifest themselves. We pray for our nations. We pray for our cities. We pray for our households. We pray for our church. We pray for our neighborhoods. We pray for our workplaces. These things, men, should be on your regular prayer agenda. If you're living life on mission with Jesus, praying for the full scope of the people in your lives is your responsibility. And it will lead to peace and contentment and happiness. It, it does. It does. In a sense that God is leading in your life. Very strong sense. And that you're on the right track. Clarify and simplify your world. And we've gone over these things in the previous sermons. And instead of living your life in pursuit of selfish pursuits, live your life in the pursuit of the benefit of others. Which is what Christ calls husbands to and fathers to. Sacrifice your life for the benefit and the beautification of your wife and of your children. And if you're not married and you don't have kids, you have a church family and they need your help. They need your help. There's lots of work to do to bring beauty and truth and strength to this world, this church, and the world. Enjoy what God has given you, but resist the urge. And this is an off conclusion with this. Resist the urge to overextend into good but distracting things. It's a hard temptation. And the more money and resources and time you have, the more you can get distracted. Let me pray.